Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, a broadcast about timely, important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Ted Scher from the law firm of Zarwin, Baum, DeVito, Kaplan, Scher, and Toddy PC with offices in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Ted is a shareholder with the firm and resides in their Philadelphia office. He is also the co-chairman of the firm's Property and Casualty Defense Department. He serves as National Emergency Response Counsel for Coach USA Megabus and holds appointments as National and Regional Counsel for several large transportation and third-party administration companies. He also supervises the firm's catastrophic response team. Ted, we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thanks so much. Today's topic is emergency response and the impact on the insurance industry, and Brendan Noonan is going to lead off with our first question. Ted, what is the attorney's primary role during the emergency response process? The attorney has four primary roles in every emergency response, and particularly in the, in, in the response in a commercial motor vehicle accident. The primary roles of a responsibility uh, for the attorney is the preservation of scene evidence the protection of the commercial driver, particularly of his Fifth Amendment rights, and potential criminal implications, if any, in the case. The prevention of spoliation of evidence, which is becoming a very large problem in cases, and an early and timely liability assessment for the motor carrier and the insurer, depending on who hired the counsel. Uh, how do the emergency response services benefit or assist a client in handling a potential claim? It assists the client in, in all four of those areas that I laid out above. You know, primarily it, it assists the client in an early determination of liability of an accident and ensuring that a problem outside of the accident itself doesn't arise. First and foremost, you know, is the preservation of scene evidence. Um, oftentimes, the law enforcement's first job is to clear the scene of the accident. Sometimes you get unsophisticated law enforcement that don't have the capabilities to do a complete reconstruction or have the technical know-how to really uncover the physical evidence which leads to the analysis of how the accident occurred. So by bringing in counsel who has an experienced recon team and an experienced emergency response team, we're able to ensure that a proper assessment of liability occurs through the collection of scene evidence, the preservation of equipment on a commercial motor vehicle, things like a commercial ECM electronic control module, ensuring that none of the equipment um, is destroyed or in any way damaged, which would then give rise to a spoliation claim and potentially punitive damages by a third party. Ted, are there other parties involved in the emergency response, and if so, what roles do they play? Sure. From our standpoint, um, in addition to an attorney, we always have local counsel. We also have an accident recon and an accident recon team who is on the scene, again, collecting evidence, doing measurements, trying to figure out what has happened. Oftentimes, we'll bring in uh, an aerial surveillance company, whether that's a straight-wing plane or a helicopter, to take scene photos. Depending on the cause and origin of the accident, we may bring in other experts. As an example, I recently was involved in a case where there was a tire blowout. So we immediately brought in a forensic engineer with a specialty in rubber treading 
and tires to make a determination as to why that occurred. Oftentimes, we use storage facilities, national storage facilities, to store and maintain our equipment. Then we also may bring in, at least preliminarily, a trucking liability practices expert, someone who's got familiarity with the Federal Motor Safety Carrier Administration regulations, so we can take a look at the driver's qualification file, the maintenance file of the equipment involved to ensure that there are no collateral issues. And that's generally the people that we bring in from our emergency response team. Of course, you're always dealing with some aspect of law enforcement, whether it's state or local police. Uh, You could be dealing with the state Department of Transportation, and in some cases, district attorney or law enforcement with people in the criminal justice system who believe that the actions of the driver uh, rises above general negligence and that of criminal liability. Now, what roles do law enforcement and government officials play in the emergency response process, and do they ever present an obstacle in the investigation? Well, they certainly are always involved in a in an emergency response because generally these emergency responses occur on public highways. Oftentimes, they involve catastrophic injuries. So, of course, law enforcement is brought in initially along with emergency medical personnel to respond to the initial accident. Thereafter, you know, we oftentimes will see an investigation by a district attorney's office again to determine whether, in fact, there's any criminal culpability, and that may arise due to conditions involving excessive speed. Perhaps the driver is in, in violation of his hours of service as set forth by the Federal Safety Carrier Motor Administration. Perhaps he fails a drug or an alcohol test. Uh, so oftentimes, if we're dealing with some aspect of law enforcement in the emergency response. Can they be an obstacle? Sure. Um, Oftentimes, law enforcement want to interview our driver, and we have to explain to them why the driver has Fifth Amendment protections that we need to preserve until we understand further what law enforcement's uh, idea is and, and, and where they want to go. We try as best as possible to work with law enforcement, not to have them as an obstacle. Oftentimes, the response that we have is more sophisticated by virtue of our resources available to us than local law enforcement. And oftentimes, we work hand-in-glove with them in a trade-off that we're willing to trade them aerial photographs or initial impressions of our accident reconstruction experts. They don't have one on their team. Downloading of the ECM of the vehicle, um, particularly if there's been damage and we need to bring in an expert to do something what's called a bench download. So we try not to have them be an obstacle. There are certainly times that they are, but we find out that when we work together, we're all really trying to work towards the same goal, and that is to reconstruct the accident. Ted, what steps do people on your emergency response team take to handle and preserve evidence? Well, from the first call that comes in, we try to make a determination as to where the equipment is. As I'm sure you're aware, commercial motor vehicles, most commercial motor vehicles, as well as regular passenger vehicles, contain a black box, which is referred to as the ECM, which is the electronic control module. So one of the first things that we try to find out is whether the equipment has been moved, certain trucks and certain engine types. If you turn the vehicle over, the ignition over, after it's been turned off, you have a loss of that data. So one of the first things that we do is if we can get on the phone to the driver or we can get on the phone to law enforcement, we ask them not to in any way turn the truck over and start the ignition with fear of losing that data. We also try to take steps to move the uh, equipment from the scene to a safe location so there is no uh, change or alteration in any of the physical damage sustained, not only in our, in our equipment, but the other vehicles involved because it's when you have it's only when you have all the vehicles and you can really look at all of the physical damage do you have the ability to piece together the puzzle as to how the accident occurred. We also work on the back end with, with, with our clients. 
although our boots on the ground are working in the front end, um, doing all the things that we talked about, including moving the tractor and the trailer to a storage facility, ensuring that if it's a, a perishable load or if it's a load that has to be timely delivered, that the seal isn't broken and that the shipper and the receiver also understand what are going on. Simultaneous with that, our office and our emergency response technicians are working with the commercial motor vehicle back office, ensuring, again, almost a preservation of evidence. We're ensuring that there's a litigation hold on electronic data. We're ensuring that records involving the maintenance of the equipment, the driver qualification file, uh, and all of the data today is, is properly preserved with the increased burdens that's placed on lawyers and on litigants for electronically stored information, ESI. It's critical that we don't have any write-overs of any electronic data stored by the client, which otherwise might be used in litigation. So all preservation efforts are not only on the front end and at the accident scene, but they're also in the back end working with the commercial motor vehicle company to ensure that no data is destroyed, which may be later useful in the defense of the case, or more importantly, to combat any allegations of spoliation of evidence, which in and of itself can be a separate cause of action given rise to punitive and extra-contractual damages. Ted, what is the turnaround time with emergency response, and how soon can a client expect a report with analysis regarding liability or damages involved in the claim? Um, you know, every emergency response takes on its own flavor based on where the emergency response is. I mean, if you've got an emergency response in the middle of the mountains in Montana, it just may take physically more time to land boots on the ground to get your experts there. What we like to tell people is that within 30 to 90 minutes of any call, we like to have at least a field adjuster on the team identifying the scene, um, hopefully identifying where our driver is. We try to land an, uh, an attorney boots on the ground as soon as possible within that time frame as well. And then we try to get our accident recon folks there in a timely manner. What we hope to do is to have our independent adjuster and our accident recon in the field and on the accident scene before the equipment has been moved. That is if you get an immediate phone call uh, and you've got what we refer to as a hot loss. Oftentimes in our business, we don't even get told about the accident until well after the accident has occurred, the vehicle and the equipment has been moved, and we're just getting secondhand information. On those cases where we are told about an accident, vehicles, and people are still at the scene, once we land boots on the ground, we're attempting to update our clients as information comes in. People that do this work understand that, that information, generally within the first four to five hours of a hot loss, is anecdotal. What we try to do is to provide, we refer to them as field flash reports, which can take on the form of every hour to two hours as information is developed. What we try to do is push those field flash reports out within the first four to five hours, synthesizing information, taking information and collected from various sites, whether those sites are the hospital, those sites could be the storage facility where the equipment is, it could be the downloading of the information, it could be the information received by interviewing witnesses. Once we take that information in, after about six or seven hours, we then start having a better feel as to what's going on. What we tell our client is, is generally within 24 hours of a loss that we're going to have a very good sense of what the liability picture is, assuming that we've had access to the evidence that we need. I mean, oftentimes, in a very substantial commercial motor vehicle accident, the equipment itself may be impounded by the depart by the State Department of Transportation. So you don't get access to your equipment. You can't download the ECM. You can't have your experts physically inspect the property damage. And that can certainly um, stall the ability to give a good sense of liability from that first 24 hours. But that's what we're looking for. And oftentimes, candidly, we know 
liability within hours after having our field team at the scene. But what we like to do is be right and be accurate, and that requires getting as much of the evidence that's available to you and then putting it all together and coming up with an accurate reconstruction. When did you first start the emergency response program? How did it come about, and can you tell us about your first response? It was just kind of, I think I'm an accidental tourist to the uh, emergency response business. I clearly remember my first emergency response. It was about 18 years ago. I had, uh, and it was actually for Coach USA. I had represented them in a large trial in Atlantic City and, and, and got a verdict on their behalf. And the risk manager called me up a couple weeks thereafter and reported to me that they uh, had just had an accident reported at the Philadelphia airport and they needed to find out what was going on and could I go down there. And I remember uh, getting in my car and driving to the airport and not really having a clue as to what exactly I was supposed to do. There was no protocols in place and there was no uh, guidelines as we now have uh, put into place. And I just went to the Philadelphia airport and uh, started interviewing witnesses and uh, looking at equipment and made a decision, geez, I guess I should call my accident reconstruction expert in. And from there, it, it kind of evolved. And, and has said that's about 18 years ago and, and, and now has developed into a nationwide program, more sophisticated, built-in protocols, redundancies, and structure and processes to make it right as possible in a, in a very difficult and kind of a, you know just a, a crazy situation. Uh, Ted, can you tell us about the two most interesting emergency responses that you have directed, and, and how did they pan out? You know, over over the past 18 years, I think that you know we, we've done hundreds of emergency responses. If two of them have to stand out in my mind, uh, certainly the September 2010 megabus accident in Syracuse, New York, where a megabus, double-decker megabus, about approximately three o'clock in the morning, hit a low-hanging railroad bridge, where we had four fatalities and approximately 22 injuries. That stands out in my mind. It was a catastrophic event. It was a horrible event for all the parties involved. And the sheer magnitude of the response, because it involved mass casualties, um, oftentimes when we're dealing with these commercial vehicle accidents, we, we certainly have a truck driver. Perhaps we have another vehicle or another vehicle after that, but we're dealing with several catastrophically injured people. In, in the Coach Megabus case, you know, we had about 27 or 28, you know, very uh, four fatalities and varying degrees of catastrophic injuries. And the sheer enormity of coordinating from first phone call to coordinating people to get them from the accident scene to a, setting up a command and control center, working with the local Red Cross to ensure that these folks that weren't injured could move to their destination, finding their bags, the corporate communication side of brand preservation, and just the sheer enormity of, of the injuries and the scope of the investigation because it was a nationally high-profile case. That certainly uh, sits in my mind as, as one that I remember. Um, just last summer, we had another case involving uh, a uh, megabus where we had a blowout tire um, in Litchfield, Illinois, where it had a couple fatalities in that as well as a lot of seriously injured cases. And that stands out in my mind for all the same reasons, just moving the injured and the non-injured to a safe place, finding ways to get them to their final destination, ensuring brand preservation, working with local law enforcement to get a clear picture of what happened. And, and over the years, I've had other ones stand out in my mind. You know, just, I mean, I had one two or three years ago outside of Des Moines, Iowa, where we had, you know, seven fatals. At that one, we were found, you know, not at fault in you know, just the sheer number of deaths in that case always stands out in my mind. And, you know, for whatever reason, there's always ones that stand out in your mind. We had one about two and a half years ago and involving two children that were passengers in their mother's car that was pulling a disabled van 
to the Mexican border, and it was put together. The tow bar was was, it was a thing that was done by somebody with duct tape and broom handles, and the vehicle flipped over and went into my truck, which hit, and, and two children were lost. And that one, that one always stands out in my mind. I mean, the ones where children are involved seem to always stand out in your mind. And, you know, those cases were resolved favorably in favor of my client and resolved on, ter- on our terms. But the loss of life stands out in your mind, I, I think, the most over my career. I still haven't gotten over that. Uh, what is the most important aspect of the emergency response, and, and why is it vital to the process? Answering the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's the most important aspect. I mean, there's lots of important aspects, but the most important aspect for the client is having the ability to have someone pick up that phone at 3 o'clock in the morning and deploy and get boots on the ground to begin the investigation of the accident, the preservation of evidence, and the analysis of liability. Having a network of competent people who understand what their roles and their responsibilities are in an emergency response and how they interplay with each other's roles are vital in ensuring that you have an accurate picture of how the accident occurred. There are times where, by virtue of the geography of the accident itself, we handle this on a national basis, and we, and we do this in every state and every county. But there are just times that, you know, you know, the example of the Montana or Idaho, where you don't have a close metropolitan area, where you don't have recons available or engineers available, and you've got to get people in by plane, those present challenges, but it's the ability to get the pieces in the puzzle. Um, And I also think from a commercial motor vehicle standpoint, the ability to get a hold, from the council standpoint, the ability to get a hold of a commercial driver before he gives a statement to law enforcement, in in my mind, has become one of the most important aspects. And I say that because in, in addition to running our emergency response program, I try cases, and I try a lot of cases. And oftentimes at trial, juries are most persuaded by the first statement that's given by the driver to law enforcement. Plaintiff's counsels look at juries and tell them, when do you think the statement was most accurate? At the time that he made it immediately after the accident or a year later after he lawyered up? And the reality is that at the time that a driver makes a statement after an accident, it's an unreliable statement. Oftentimes, the driver himself is or herself is injured. They may have suffered a head injury. They are traumatized by the accident. They may see dead bodies on the road. Their whole life is flashing before them. Their livelihood is flashing before them. And they are feeling pressured. And oftentimes, they make assumptions and statements about how the accident occurred that aren't borne out by the facts, the physical or the secondary evidence. So for us, being able to get to that driver as soon as possible and being able to cloak him in the protection of the attorney-client privilege and have him not make statements which may be inaccurate and later might be used against him, to us has become really you know, the focal point. We need to speak to that driver. We need to isolate that driver, and we need to ensure that that driver's Fifth Amendment rights are protected because everything really flows from the driver's statement. Thanks very much for joining us today, Ted. Not a problem. That was Ted Scher from the law firm of Zarwin, Baum, DeVito, Kaplan, Scher, Toddy, PC, with offices in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. 
Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance Insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 